Life's Everyday Mystery Solved, The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Welcome aboard. I'm Joe Schwartz, and I, uh, I'm your host every Sunday afternoon here from 3 to 4. And when I'm not doing this, I'm uh, working as director of McGill University's Office for Science and Society, where our mandate is to separate sense from nonsense, make sure that you're up to date on what is happening in the world of science. And, uh, of course, we also try to uh, keep you out of the clutches of charlatans. And, of course, there are many of them out there. But these days, uh, let's face it, our topic of conversation, no matter where we are, revolves around COVID-19. And uh, this morning on the trivia show, I asked a question. The question was about the link between the Soviet space program and COVID-19. Now, as you probably know, the reason I ask these questions is to give me a platform from which to launch into a discussion of the topic. I think this one was a pretty easy one to uh, answer. And, uh, you know, it's uh, not easy to come up with questions that are somewhat challenging uh, that cannot be easily Googled and are, are still fair. So I, I'm not all that concerned uh, because uh, the important thing is to introduce topics that uh, we can discuss here on the show. All right, so let's go back for a moment to 1957, October 4th. Believe it or not, I kind of remember that because even back then I was interested in the, uh, in the space program. I was very young, obviously, at the time. But I had just started reading about this. So I knew all about this irritating beep-beep that American radio transmission monitors were picking up. And boy, were they scared. That aggravating sound was uh, coming basically from space. It was from a transmitter inside a little metal ball. It was about the size of a basketball. And this thing was orbiting the Earth every 98 minutes. And it was up there at a height of about 500 miles and was going at a speed of 18,000 miles per hour. And it passed over the United States seven times a day. And every time it passed over the U.S., monitors could pick up the irritating beep-beep sound saying, we are here. Who was the we? No, it wasn't any alien from outer space. It was the Soviets that time more scary than any alien from outer space. And they had managed to place the world's first artificial satellite into orbit. It seemed that they had won the first round of the space race. They called the little aluminum alloy globe Sputnik, and that comes from the Russian for traveler companion. Who was the traveler? Well, that was the Earth, because, of course, the Earth moves through space. And the companion was the satellite that went along with the moving Earth. Uh, Sputnik had no spine capability, no monitoring instrumentation of any kind. It had no military significance. So why was the American military so alarmed? By launching a rocket capable of achieving the speed needed to counteract the gravity of the Earth, and thereby to keep a satellite in continuous free fall around the Earth. And that really is what orbiting is all about. Just think about it for a moment. Uh, what you have to do is cancel out the pull of gravity. So in order to do that, 
the satellite has to be going fast enough so that its forward momentum cancels out the, the pull of gravity, and that comes around 17,500 miles per hour. And as long as you are in outer space, where there is no atmosphere to slow you down, uh, you will keep orbiting, that is, in free fall around the Earth, because the pull of gravity is exactly equal to the uh, forward momentum. So, by demonstrating that they had been able to, to put a satellite into orbit uh, around, uh, around the Earth, what the Soviets had actually demonstrated was that they had the technology to produce ballistic missiles that could target America. Although there was, you know, in those days, a great deal of ballyhoo. Uh, they we're talking here about the 1950s, early 1960s. There was a lot of ballyhoo about conquering space. Why? For the sake of science, supposedly. But that wasn't exactly true. I mean, obviously, it was a tremendous amount of science involved in doing this. But the fact is that in those days, the days of the Cold War, the real race was for military supremacy. And the goal was to produce missiles that were armed with nuclear warheads and that were capable of striking anywhere in the world. Great achievements in space would signal military potency. And this is what the Russians had demonstrated. If they were able to put this ball into orbit around the Earth, that meant that they had a ballistic missile uh, that was uh, potent enough to deliver uh, a nuclear bomb anywhere in the world. The Americans were somewhat caught off guard by the Soviet success. I mean, they were not totally oblivious to what was going on in the Soviet Union, of course. They knew that they, that the Soviets, along with the Americans, were working on the project of, of putting a satellite into space. But the Americans thought that the, the Soviets were not quite as advanced as they were. So anyway, when they were uh, frightened by this Soviet success, America began to invest extensively in science education and I remember those days, there was a great deal of money that was available for any sort of uh, science education. And uh, of course, uh, the country also strived very vigorously to match the Soviets in space. And uh, they were successful just four months after Sputnik when the U.S. launched its first satellite. It was called Explorer 1. And uh, that had a different shape. It was shaped like a, a little rocket. and was, I don't know, something like... Uh, two meters long and about six uh, inches across. And that actually had some monitoring uh, equipment inside that would monitor radiation in, in space. And, and uh, actually, it, it uh, was intended to study the Van Allen uh, belt, uh, radiation belt around the Earth. So anyway, they, they didn't manage to put Explorer 1 into space after many failures. Uh, and some of them were very embarrassing because they were televised live. And the American public saw the American rockets blow up uh, on the launch pad. But, of course, as we know, eventually the, the U.S., uh, uh, I, I think we can say, won the space race when Neil Armstrong stepped on the moon. And uh, he said, uh, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Well, now there's need for another giant leap. This time, the race is not for space, but the race is on for the vaccine that will extricate the world out of this uh, COVID-19 quagmire that we are in. And the Russians claim that once again, they are leading the game, having come up with a highly successful vaccine. They grandiosely named it Sputnik V, with the V standing for vaccine, and Sputnik, 
basically to infer first because the, the uh, Sputnik satellite was the first of its kind. So now the, the inference is that this is the first vaccine that is going to be useful against uh, this uh, scourge of COVID-19. So the question is, will it be the companion that will allow us to travel out of this coronavirus mess? Uh, as you can imagine, Western scientists are skeptical. They usually are about you know any information coming out of Russia because it's uh, it's not exactly the same kind of society that uh, we have uh, here in in the West, and uh, they're not the most uh, trustworthy. However, I think it is also uh, fair to say that while uh, the Russian political system is you know somewhat questionable in terms of the degree of uh, of freedom that it affords. Russian science is very strong, and it always has been. Uh, I mean, uh, if you, you take a, a student in grade three in Russia, I can tell you that they will know a lot more than a student in grade three here. They'd be learning algebra already at that time. So the Russians are very strong on that. So we, we, just, we can't dismiss their vaccine uh, just because it's Russian and, and uh, you know we, we have some uh, uh, skepticism about tr uh, trusting anything that comes out of, of Russia. But anyway, I think that there is some validity here and I'm, I'm going to go on and explain to you just what this virus is all about or, or this vaccine is all about. But before we do that, we're going to take a little break so that we can check traffic. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Okay, let's get things rolling here with my question of the day. What is the nickname for the airplane that can create weightlessness by flying in a wave pattern uh, in part of which it is in free fall? What is the name for that airplane? Astronauts train on this, of course, and I'm sure most of you have seen videos of this. Well, for about uh, 30 seconds, they can experience weightlessness as the airplane dives uh, down. And uh, on, on one flight, they can repeat this about 60 times. So what is the name of that uh, airplane? It's a, it's a nickname, um, obviously. <clears throat> you give us a call at 514-790-0800. 514-790-0800 if you have the answer to that. Of course, that's the number to call for any question that you may have as well. And you can also text to 514-800. Okay. Well, let's just get back to what uh, what I was talking about before when we're talking about uh, the new Russian uh, vaccine. And uh, they're calling it Sputnik V, and the V, of course, stands for vaccine. Okay, well, all vaccines being developed around the world are based on, on the same principle. And the idea is to trick the body into producing antibodies to the virus without actually having been attacked by the virus because we're not going to inject live virus into the body. This is too contagious a virus and, and uh, of course that would be way, way too risky. Uh, those familiar pictures that you see everywhere of the virus show a number of protrusions on its surface. They look like little knobs and these make it resemble a crown, hence the term coronavirus. These are the so-called spike proteins that the virus uses to gain entry into cells, and are also the parts of the virus that the immune system recognizes as foreign and to which it can generate antibodies 
that then latch onto these proteins and prevent the virus from infecting uh, cells. So the challenge is to introduce the spike proteins into the bloodstream somehow without introducing the live SARS-CoV-2 virus. And there are several platforms that are capable of meeting this challenge. Uh, and the one that uh, the Soviets use, the Sputnik, is known as a viral vector. So here is the idea. You want to select a virus that is harmless, snip out the genes it uses to replicate, and insert the genes that code for the spike protein. Now, way back in, in January of, of this year, Chinese researchers pub published the total genetic sequence of the virus, and that uh, allowed for the genes that code for the spike protein to be identified. The DNA sequences that make up these genes can then be produced in the laboratory and can be introduced into the genome of a virus. Now, the virus, of course, that they're going to use is a virus that is not dangerous to, to humans. And the, the Soviets are using an adenovirus, which is one of the viruses that causes uh, colds. So anyway, when this engineered virus infects a cell, it delivers its DNA into the nucleus, where its sequence is copied. This is known as transcription. And that will produce messenger RNA. And these molecules then migrate out of the cell's nucleus into the cytoplasm. Well, this is where the action then takes place. Because little micro-machines there, like, called ribosomes, synthesize proteins. This is referred to as translation, translation of the information from the messenger RNA. And uh, so they make these proteins based on the information carried by RNA. When this protein is the coronavirus's spike protein, then the immune system recognizes it as an unwelcome intruder and generates antibodies in response. So next time, if an active SARS-CoV-2 virus should find its way into the system, the antibodies that are now present will recognize the spike proteins, bind to them, and prevent them from engaging with receptors on host cells and that, of course, is the prelude to invading a cell. If, they, if the spike proteins cannot get into those receptors, then the virus cannot invade the cell. Well, both Sputnik V and AstraZeneca's vaccine are based on this technology, although there are some differences. While AstraZeneca uses a virus that is isolated from chimpanzees that cannot cause disease in humans, Sputnik makes use of a human adenovirus that commonly causes colds. And some uh, Russian websites have shown comical pictures of people being transformed into chimps after being injected with the AstraZeneca vaccine. Oh, of course, this is totally ridiculous. One possible difference between these two vaccines is that while both vaccines require two doses spaced weeks apart, Sputnik uses a different adenovirus for the second dose. This is to circumvent the possibility of developing an immune reaction to some part of the viral vector that was used in the first dose, uh, because, of course, that contains other proteins other than just a spike protein. So that would then set up uh, the chance for allergic reaction, and the uh, second dose would then bring that reaction out. So the Soviets you know, are pretty clever in that way. 
Anyway, both vaccines claim an efficacy of over 90%, which is very impressive. Uh, but the studies are short-term, and the number of positive COVID cases on which the stats are based are very few. In the AstraZeneca trial, only 131 positive cases, and in the Russian trial, only 39 cases, and the Russian trial was only one month long so far. Also, for some strange reason, the Russian trial has three times as many subjects in the vaccine group as in the placebo group. So at this, uh, all we can say is that the results are encouraging. Tell. Now, the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines, which we've talked about before, uh, these use a different approach. In this case, rather than using a vector, it is the messenger RNA itself that is packaged inside a nanoparticle composed of fats. This allows for migration of the RNA through the cell membrane because that is also composed of fats. And it also protects the RNA from degradation, reaches the cytoplasm of the cell, which gives out its instructions to produce the spike protein. As with the viral vector platform, immune cells then generate antibodies in response to the foreign invader, namely the spike protein. And uh, the re reason uh, in those uh, vaccines that there's a need for low temperature is that the RNA vaccine uh, uh, has to, to be stabilized. That, that is, the, the nano fat particles that it uses have to be stabilized because they come apart at a higher temperature. So they have to be delivered at sub-zero uh, temperatures. So there is a little bit of a lesson for you in how these vaccines are worked there several different platforms other than these as well, and there are 140 vaccines being developed uh, around the world. But uh, I, I don't think that we can dismiss the Soviet effort. The uh, vector uh, uh, platform is, is one that has been tested in animals. Veterinarians have used vaccines based on uh, the vector uh, platform before. It has not been used on humans. Uh, so we will just have to wait and see. You know the ancient Chinese proverb that ever uh, begins with a single step? Yes. And we've taken the first step in development of a vaccine, but it's going to be a long journey. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll check news and be right back. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. I think I got carried away there with the term Soviet because, uh, of course, I grew up under Soviet rule. Uh, the Sputnik in uh, 57, of course, was launched under Soviet uh, uh, rule. But uh, then the Soviet Union, of course, broke apart, and now we're talking about Russia. So the vaccine that we're talking about, the Sputnik vaccine, although it harkens back to the Soviet days in terms of its name, uh, of course, we're talking about Russia producing this uh, vaccine. So it's not a Soviet vaccine. It's a Russian vaccine. Okay. Uh, the question about the airplane that gives you the feeling of weightlessness, I don't think this was a difficult question. Brian. Yes, uh, yes, Dr. Shell, really enjoy listening to your show. Um, Thank you. Yeah, the name uh, is the Vomit Comet. Yes, of course, of course. And that was an easy one. Yeah. yeah. All right, so we're yeah. going to give you a harder one. Uh-oh. Okay? <laughs> okay. Uh, one of the most famous books, science books in history is the Principia by Newton. Uh, in which he put forward the, uh, you know, the uh, theory of gravity and laws of motion, etc. So, what would you say, in the world today, roughly, how many 
copies of the original, the first edition, still exist. And I'll, I'll be lenient. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll give you leeway on this one. How many versions would exist today? That's... How many copies of the original Newton, Newton's yeah. book, Principia, published yeah. in the 17th century? I'd say very few, uh, under three. No, you're off by a factor of about 100. It's, oh, my uh, God. Yeah, there, there are 387 <laughs> copies, and in, in, uh, all of them are uh, either in museums around the world or uh, there are a few that are owned by some very rich uh, private owners. Yeah. I remember one of the lunar landings, they dropped uh, a feather and I yes. think it was a hammer. Right. To, uh, yes, they did. To yeah. emphasize that. They, they did. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, uh, you have to remember that, uh, you know, the, uh, Gutenberg uh, and the printing press was, you know, quite a bit before mm -hmm. the 17th century. So they had the means of, uh, of doing print. Yeah. So there were probably, you know, quite a few more than the 387 copies that are now known to exist right. that, uh, that were, uh, were printed. Yeah. All right. Okay. Anyway, one for two is not bad. Okay. Right? Thank you. Okay. Thanks very yeah. much. Bye. Bye. All right. Uh, next question. A prickle, P R I C K L E, refers to what group of animals? What group of animals is known as a prickle? All right. But we still have uh, Jimmy on the line here. Jimmy. Yes. How are you, Dr. John? Okay. So, Jimmy, uh, something interesting I noticed at my mom's house. She keeps charcoal in the cold room, like like chunks of charcoal, and right. she swears by it that it replaces a charcoal filter. And I was always curious, and I did looking up on on Doctor Google and well, a charcoal nothing. filter for what? No, she just like she just leaves charcoal loose in the room that, and she swears that it takes away the smell of it the does. musty smell of the room. Yes, I don't. Your mom yeah, is right. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Charcoal has this uh, ability to adsorb smells, that is to attract uh, compounds to its surface. But it has to be a special kind of charcoal. It has to be that, what we call activated charcoal. That's what she says. Yes, yeah. Yeah, you got <laughs> a smart hard. mom. Yeah. Yeah, but so the, learning that, from the elders there. <laughs> yeah, does she know that she's using activated charcoal? Well, because she always wants to buy a specific kind of charcoal every time we go out. She says, no, the other ones are no good. The briquettes are no good. And yeah. then she buys uh, okay. those. Yes. No, I mean, uh, water filters, air filters uh, very commonly use uh, charcoal. Uh, okay. wa municipal water treatment plants, some of them use uh, activated carbon filters. And okay. uh, that is because the activated carbon is riddled through and through with tiny little channels in which molecules can get stuck. So, okay. yes, it, it, it does work. Very good. Thank okay. you so much. Have All a right. great day. Okay. Uh, we have, I think, Ron. Ron on the line? Yes. Hello? Yes, sir. Yep. Hello? Yes, sir. Yeah. Um, the prickle thing, would it be a porcupine? Yes. Very <laughs> good. Very good. All right. Um, All right. I got another question for you then. Yeah. You know that bacteria uh, can be found anywhere in the world. You know, there's virtually no place that doesn't have some bacteria except for one. There's only one, one environment in the world where bacteria cannot exist. Where is that? Alaska? No. Okay. All right. Well, can, can we'll, we'll leave that question? question. We'll leave that question open. Go can ahead. Can I ask a question? Yeah, sure. Okay, um, I was taking apart a car door from a 2018 Ford 
uh, Explorer. The door had been smashed in, so I had to take a cutting wheel and cut all the, the metal out. And then I had to get the window out, so I had to cut some of the plastic parts that are throughout the door. And I cut into a part, and the odor, and it was toxic. I had to back away from the pizza. It, it took away my breath. Mm-hmm. What kind of plastic are they using in these inside the doors of, of these cars now? That's most likely PVC, polyvinyl chloride. And uh, when you when you heat up uh, polyvinyl chloride, which obviously you you do when you saw through it, I mean there's tremendous friction there, and uh, that can re- release a variety of chlorine compounds, including uh, uh, vapor of uh, hydrochloric acid, so HCl vapor, and that I think is what you experienced. Okay. Yeah. Should have worn a mask. Yeah, you should have worn a mask. Yeah, yeah. you should have worn a mask. Yeah. Okay. So don't, thank you. <laughs> don't go cutting cars open. All right. Uh, so I've got uh, that question uh, hanging out there. What is the only place on earth with no bacteria? And uh, I'll give you another question because I think it is interesting. And uh, it's about a truck. And this truck uh, was carrying fruit. And it triggered an alarm on a radiation detector that was looking for possible hidden nuclear weapons. What fruit was that truck carrying? that triggered an alarm on a radiation uh, detector. So that's one question out there. And the other one is the only place on Earth uh, where bacteria cannot exist. Uh, I shouldn't say only place. We're not looking for one specific location. It's one type of environment that you can find in, in a number of places around the Earth where bacteria cannot exist because of whatever the local condition is that is provided by that environment. All right, so uh, put your thinking cap on while we take a break. We're going to check traffic, and we'll be right back. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. Life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Okay, we've got Debbie on the line. Debbie. Hi. Hi. So is it uh, the Dead Sea where bacteria won't grow? There actually are bacteria in the Dead Sea. There oh. are. It's not okay. It's not a big breeding ground for bacteria, but there are bacteria in the Dead Sea. Okay. All thanks. right. Thanks for that. Uh, let's see. Who do we have here? Is that Gary? Hello. Hi. Hi, Dr. Joe. How are you doing? Okay. Great so, show. Uh, I think it's the world's deserts, like the Sahara. Death oh, Valley. no, no. There's plenty of bacteria in the desert. Okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> All right. Bye. Thank All you. Okay. And uh, see who else do we have here. I think we have Jean-Pierre. Jean-Pierre? Yes? You usually yes. have the right Can answer. Volcano? What? Hello? A volcano? Yes, it is. it is. That's the only place where bacteria in the world cannot survive is in the lava pit of a volcano because it is way too hot and therefore uh, bacteria. But um, they survive everywhere. They, they, they have been found at the bottom of the ocean. They're found in mountains, uh, but not in a volcano. Very good. All right. Uh, are, are, you, are you game for uh, another question? Okay. okay. All right. Let me, let me uh, find you one. Um, oh, well, do you know the one for the other question that I asked about the, uh, the truck? The truck carrying a fruit that triggered an alarm for a radiation detector, and the question was, what fruit was it carrying? Uh, 
I didn't hear, but I, um, I don't have an answer. An answer, actually. All right. So I'll, I give you a chance. I give you another question. Okay. Uh, let me see here. Um, the fastest fish in the world can swim at almost seventy miles per hour. What fish is that? No, no. Okay. All right, so we will leave that one open as well. So we're looking for the okay. fastest fish in the world that can Thank swim you. up to 70 miles per hour. Want to know what that is. And we're also looking for the truck that can carry, uh, that was carrying a fruit, and the fruit set off a radiation detector. Uh, question is what that was. Okay, we got Harry here. Harry. Hi. Hi. Uh, a few weeks ago we were talking about hydrogen. Yes. Uh, did, I don't don't remember. Did you mention green hydrogen? Green hydrogen. Green or grain? No, green. Green. Uh, I'll let, just tell you what it is. It, it's uh, hydrogen that is made uh, environment environmentally correct. Okay. Are you familiar? Well, so, I mean, you can make hydrogen in many different ways, but right. the the most common one is to make it from carbon dioxide, steam distilled carbon dioxide. With water, yeah. Okay. Well, what right. do, what are you suggesting? Well, uh, they're talking about these companies that are going to be uh, producing hydrogen for powering cars. Yes. So to make this sound better, they call it green hydrogen. So what they're doing is uh, they're going to make hydrogen from electrolysis, but the power to do the electrolysis is going to be coming from wind power or solar. Right. What do you think of that? That makes sense. It makes sense. That makes sense, yeah. But how much hydrogen can you actually make from such a small amount of power? Oh, no. The wind turbines can generate quite significant power. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. They're, they're, they're in Europe, there are towns that are powered by wind turbines. Oh yeah, no, yeah. that's it. That's uh, that's not crazy. It's yeah. Kind of, yeah. So to get uh, all the envir environmentalists on board, they they're promoting green hydrogen. Right. Now another question: uh, They're also talking about uh, you know we're all getting packages from Amazon, and they want to do it the green way, meaning uh, you shouldn't be getting one or two day delivery because that makes certain trucks that come to your house half empty right. or they have to fly airplanes instead of doing ground so, so uh, now they're talking another way of uh, saving the environment uh, any thoughts on that or you mean by just uh, uh, waiting until you've ordered enough so that many packages can be delivered at the same time and it shouldn't be flown in planes cnn had a report on that mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, anything that we can do to cut down on, on burning gasoline is, you know, obviously desirable for the environment. Yeah, so that makes some sense. Okay. All right. Uh, all right, and uh, Thank, yeah. one last question. Yeah. How safe is it to fly on a plane these days? Well, actually, flying on the plane, in, ter in terms of the virus you're worried about, mm -hmm. uh, is quite safe because the air exchange on the plane is, uh, is very quick. Every two, three minutes, the total air exchanges... And they're very careful also about wiping everything down on the plane. It's The question is about uh, what you're going to do when you get to wherever you're going. That's where the risk is, not on the airplane. All right. Okay? Okay. All right, thanks. Let's go to Sam. Sam. Yes, hello? Yes, sir. Yes, hi, Dr. Joe. Hi. My name is Sammy, and I'm here with my son, Thomas. He has the answer for your fish question. Okay. 
The answer is sailfish. Yes, it is. Very good. It is indeed the sailfish. The sailfish can swim. Uh, I think the fastest recorded actually is 68 miles per hour. Good job. Good job, Thomas. Very good. Very good. So we got a budding scientist there? Yeah, yeah. There you go. Okay. Yeah. An Great. Aspiring, uh, scientist. Okay, very good. Thank you. Okay, Thank let's you check much. in with George. George. Yes, Dr. Joe, how are you? All right. Okay, your question about germs. About germs? Uh, or viruses? We, we already had the answer. Oh, did you? What were you going to say? Antarctica. No, no. There are many, many bacteria that can live in cold temperatures. Uh, what's the answer? The answer was in the lava pit of a volcano. Oh, okay. Yeah. They, they cannot survive that kind of heat. Okay, thanks. Well, before we, we wrap things up here, I've got one, one last interesting uh, story for you. At least I, I think it is an interesting story because these days uh, people are growing a lot of beards. Uh, COVID somehow seems to, to foster uh, growing beard. You want to be careful not to grow it too long. Why? Because it can kill you. How can a beard kill you? Well, for this little story, we go back to Braunau am Inn, which is a town in Austria, very close to Germany. And there are two famous people who come from that town. One was Hitler, who was actually born there. And uh, let's leave him out of the equation here because he should be left out of every equation. But there was also Hans Steininger, who was the town's mayor. And this was way back in the 16th century. And uh, his story is interesting. He was very well liked, apparently. Uh, and he was famous for having a long, long beard that was very well groomed. Uh, supposedly, it was four and a half feet long so that it stretched to the ground. And he usually rolled it up very carefully and he tucked it into his pocket. Well, as the story goes, one day, which was back in 1567, there was a big fire in the town. And uh, he was running away in panic. And it turns out that as he was running away, his beard came out of his pocket and started flying all over the place. And you can picture that, of course, you know, as you're running your long four and a half foot beard flopping all over the place. And he was running down the stairs. He stumbled. He tripped. And guess what he tripped on? He tripped on his beard. And uh, unfortunately, as the story goes, he broke his neck and uh, passed away. So there's a man who was killed by his own beard. And what is really fascinating is, believe it or not, the beard actually exists. There's a church in the town called St. Stephen's Church. And uh, there you can see in a, a long display case uh, the preserved beard of Hans Steininger. So that would be the reason to go to Braunau am Inn in Austria, not because it was the birthplace of Hitler. That is it. We have once again run out of time. We'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right. <laughs>